From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Senator Michael Bennett today, whom Coloradans just re-elected. The Democrat outlines his hopes for the next six years and assesses the midterms. I think that Election Day was a profound and enormous rejection of the chaos that persisted and existed under Donald Trump. I think that people have seen that they don't have to accept that as the permanent state of affairs in our exercise in self-government. We'll talk Senate control, immigration, a public insurance option, and protections for same-sex marriage. Then, we try to get a grip on Colorado's weather and climate each month with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. I'll ask him about snow. So far, the mountains are off to a very good start, uh, the best that we've seen in about 10 years in the high country. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Control of the U.S. House remains unclear. The Senate, however, will stay in Democratic hands. That means Colorado's Michael Bennett, who won re-election last week, will be in the majority. He did not know that, of course, the night he won, but still laid out his hopes for the next six years. I want to go back there to end childhood poverty. We need to address a health care system that still costs too much and doesn't cover enough Americans. We've got to fix, finally, our broken immigration system. We have to secure the future of the Colorado River and the American West. And we have to give people a sense of economic opportunity again. We connected with Senator Bennett Friday when Senate control was still up in the air. He commented in particular on next month's runoff in Georgia between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. You know, I think Reverend Warnock is one of the best members of the Senate, and um, he had to go through the misery of running a runoff the last time, and now he's doing it again this time, and, you know, I wish him all the best. In the introduction, we heard some of the expectations you're placing on yourself— Let's hear how someone else, political scientist Sarah Hagedorn of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, frames the possibilities for your next term. She spoke with us the day after the election. Bennett has some real flexibility here after this huge win. Mm. He could be a leader because he has six years until he goes before the voters again. He is representing a more blue state. He could really get out there on some issues He's talking a lot about his tax cut bill, health care. I think if he wanted to be, he could be a real leader on abortion rights. Whether he will or not remains to be seen. Do you feel as emboldened as all that on those or any other issues, Senator? Well, what I would say is that this is not about me. And when I was talking on the election night, I was talking about the ambition that I have for our country. And I hope to help lead on the topics that we talked about on immigration. I'm going back in the lame duck session to try to get the Farm Work Modernization Act over the finish line with my colleague from Idaho, who's a Republican, Mike Crapo. I think that's still the best answer to reaching universal coverage on health care in our country is my bill with Tim Kaine that would create a true public option that's um, 
that's administered by Medicare. And I do think that, you know, I have led the fight, not successfully so far, to reverse the Trump tax cuts for the wealthiest people in the country. 50, more than 50% of the benefit of that went to the top 5% of Americans at a time when our income inequality is greater than it's been in a century. And at the same time, I've written the two biggest tax cut bills for working people uh, in generations with Sherrod Brown and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. And you know, I hope very much that we're going to make progress on both of those as well in the lame duck session. I want to follow up on that public option. Uh, so that would be available to anyone of any age, presumably. Uh, yeah, I think it'd be available to anyone at any age. If you're on Medicare, you wouldn't. There would be no need for you to have the public option. Yeah. But for anybody else in America who's got private insurance, it would give them the choice of an option administered by Medicare. And, and is that the role of the government? Uh, I actually think it is. I think people get often very little value from private insurance. It's unlike lots of other things that we transact for in this market economy. When you buy your insurance you seldom are using the insurance. It's not like going and buying a loaf of bread at the store. And then months later, or maybe years later, when you have to have health care, often Americans spend their time fighting insurance companies that can pay people to stay on the phone all day, denying people their claims. So I think that is certainly an appropriate role for the government to play here. And I think it would create needed competition, especially in rural parts of Colorado. You mentioned working with a Republican on the Farmwork Modernization Act. Is that bipartisanship a rarity? Is it is it the norm? Help us understand that. Uh, I think it's definitely not the norm. But over the last two years, we have seen some substantial bipartisan wins. And I think that's one of the reasons why the election day turned out the way it did across the country. We passed the first bipartisan infrastructure bill since Eisenhower was president a really important bipartisan postal reform bill, critical to rural parts of Colorado and the country, a bipartisan gun bill, which is the first time we've overcome uh, the NRA in a generation, the most significant expansion in veterans benefits in a generation. And then a bill that was, as I traveled the state, that was wildly popular, which is a bill that for the first time since Ronald Reagan was president and began the privileging people in our economy that wanted to make stuff as cheaply as possible in China and Southeast Asia. We had a bipartisan bill called the CHIPS Act mm -hmm. to bring back the semiconductor industry to the United States. And I hope that's the first of many such bills that allows us to rebuild an economy here that when it grows, it actually grows for everybody, not just the people at the very top, which is what America has seen for the last 40 years. And I think remains the greatest threat to our democracy, that lack of sense of opportunity. Is Trumpism weaker today than it was before Election Day in your mind? I believe, yeah, I believe it is. I believe it is. I think that Election Day was a profound and enormous rejection of the chaos that persisted and existed under Donald Trump. And I think that people have seen that they don't have to accept that as the permanent state of affairs and our exercise in self-government. You know, Ryan, as I travel the state, there are a lot of Democrats and Republicans and unaffiliated voters that I meet who believe that maybe all we could ever do, you know, expect was the kind of 
insanity that we got while Donald Trump was president. My Republican colleagues spent a lot of their time, some of them hiding under their desk, you know, worried about what a tweet was going to do to them in the next 15 minutes. That's no way to run a government. That's no way to run a democracy. It's no way to compete effectively with Beijing. And I, I believe the American people also believe that. I know Colorado believes that. Colorado rejected Donald Trump on Tuesday. And yet he's a bit Teflon. And, you know, we might hear that he is running for president again. Well, he's not just a bit Teflon. I mean, so far, anything that would have stopped anybody hasn't stopped Donald Trump, who famously said that he could shoot somebody dead on Fifth Avenue and his supporters would still be there with him. I'm not so sure in the wake of Tuesday whether that's true or not. And I I choose to take an optimistic view of the American people pushing back by casting the votes the way they did in a midterm election that should have been much better for the party out of power than it was. And I think it wasn't because the American people said, we just don't want to go back in that direction. We don't want to be haunted by Donald Trump. Democrat Michael Bennett is our guest. Coloradans re-elected him to the U.S. Senate last week by a 13-point margin over Republican Joe O'Day. We recorded this conversation Friday before it was clear Democrats had held on to the Senate. The House remains uncalled. Unfortunately, and I deeply regret this, I wish it weren't true, the national Republican leadership in the House really is enthralled to Donald Trump and really is enthralled to what I think of as a very radical wing of the Republican Party. And I think we're going to see them genuflect to that wing rather than trying to create bipartisan wins for the American people. I want to pick up on the theme of immigration reform. Uh, While the Democratic majority in the Senate has been razor thin, you know, it's been total Democratic control of Congress in the White House. Will you talk to the person who thinks... Why didn't Democrats seize the opportunity to cement, gosh, immigration, abortion protections? Well, as you said, it was, I'm not making excuses, but to explain it, as you said, it was a thin majority. Obviously, the Obama administration tried to protect the dreamers, at least, through DACA. And what we've now learned from the courts is that executive order isn't going to work, that we have to pass a law in Congress, which I've always frankly believed that we needed to do. And we tried at one point to get the parliamentarian to allow us to use reconciliation to try to make some progress on immigration. She rejected that. And so in the current Senate, you need 60 votes to be able to do it. And my hope is that there is sufficient pressure on everybody, Democrats and Republicans, in an economy where we're short 11 million people, you know, we've got 11 million vacant jobs where we're losing our farms and ranches uh, every single day because our farmers and ranchers have no labor that's predictable, that that's going to force us to come together and fix this. You know, if you look at our uh, economy over the last hundred years or so, every year we've grown on average 3%. Our GDP has gone up 3%. 2% of that is organic. 1% of that is immigration. And that's a third, you know, which means that unless we're going to doom ourselves to having a third less economic growth, we need to fix this. And I hope to be in the middle of that when we do. 
on the issue of abortion, another point I guess that should be made is that regrettably from my perspective, we did not have the votes to change the rules of the Senate. I would want to change it in a number of ways, but in one way to, to make sure that the threshold for passing bills uh, was 51 votes instead of 60 votes. And I don't know whether we're going to you know, be able to do that or not when we begin this new session. We'll have to see what the makeup of the Senate is. Mm-hmm. In 2013, you were part of the Gang of Eight, a bipartisan group of senators that came together around immigration reform. And indeed, a decade later, still unresolved, contentious, both parties seize on the issue. I've heard both Democrats and Republicans say we need to fix this. But I'm starting to wonder if maybe they like to keep it unresolved so they can keep running on it. I'm sure that's true of some people. That's not true of me. I think this is a major pain point for our country and for our economy. and, And it's particularly shameful because we know what the elements of this are going to be. In the 2013 bill that passed with 68 votes in the Senate, we had uh, a pathway for the 11 million people that are here. It was not an easy pathway. It was a tough pathway, but a pathway to citizenship for them. We had the most progressive Dream Act that had ever been written. We had, you know, we solved all the visa issues relating to small businesses and to Uh, farmers and ranchers and our farm workers in this country. And we had $40 billion of border security in the bill. I mean, it wasn't medieval border security. It wasn't Donald Trump's wall. It was 21st century border security that that we developed in Iraq and Afghanistan that would have allowed us to see every inch of the border. And I know in the end, this is going to be the trade, you know, not even the trade. This will be the outcome because this is where the American people are on this issue. You're right. There probably are a minority of people that have wanted to keep the issue alive for political reasons, I suppose, on both sides. I think the big thing that changed was that when John McCain was leading that conversation in 2013, he and Lindsey Graham believed that the Republican Party would never elect another president if they didn't help fix our broken immigration system. That is what they believed, and that's why they were at the table. Well, history was very different from what they thought it would be, because the next thing that happened was Donald Trump rolled down his escalator at Trump Tower and described Mexicans as rapists. And I think a lot of people thought that was laughable and crazy and politically foolish. And he went on to win not just the nomination for the Republican presidency, but the presidency itself. And from that bully pulpit, could not have been more divisive and more terrible on the subject of getting something done on immigration. And that's why it's been so hard to find, you know, even two or three or four or five Republicans, much less the number we need to pass it, uh, to be willing to put their hand up and say, we have to fix it. But I think that as the months go by, the pressure is going to build to try to get something done here that's important. Who's building the pressure? I think the American people are building the pressure. I think businesses, when I think about the far, the bill that I've been working on, the Farm Work Modernization Act, the farmers and ranchers, the Western growers, and these people are in Washington constantly saying, fix this, fix this, fix this. And I hope that, that after the election is over, that that pressure is going to bear some fruit. Do you think there are the votes to cement into law protections for same-sex marriage? 
We don't know, Ryan, the answer to that. The sponsors of the bill, Tammy Baldwin and, and Susan Collins, asked us not to take a vote on it before the election yeah. because they were worried that that would might seem political or politicize the issue. And they believe that there are more votes in the lame duck session than there would have been before. But I have not heard anybody say they know that we have 60 votes. I hope we do. I hope we do. On election night, one of our analysts who identifies as center-right was listening to your victory speech and um, noted that you talked about the Supreme Court and that you were very critical of some of the newer sitting justices and raised the, the question of whether in talking about the high court that way, you are engaging in the kinds of assaults on institutions that Democrats have faulted Republicans for. Could you speak to that? Well, I think probably, I don't know what I said exactly, but probably what I said, because I said it over and over again during this campaign, is that when Justice Alito writes in a majority opinion that if it's not a freedom in 1868, it's not a freedom today, then we know we're still in this very long struggle between the highest ideals that have ever been written on the page and you know the words in the Constitution and the worst impulses in human history. There's not a woman who had the right to vote here in 1868. There's not a black person who had the right to vote in 1868. And to impose on the American people in the name of a concocted uh, judicial philosophy called originalism a stripping away of a 50-year constitutional right, I think is radical. I think that's radical. So I think we have to be, and I'm, and I will say it again, I think it's radical. So I don't mean to undermine our institutions, and I and I don't want us to undermine our institutions, but I do think it's the case that you have a faction on the Supreme Court that represents a judicial doctrine that was created, really invented in the Reagan era, shortly before I, I was in college and law school myself, and they're using it to rip freedoms away from the American people. And so there's a lot of work for us to do. Before we go, do you keep in touch with people you ran against and beat? I keep in touch with Ken Buck because he's a you know a diligent member of our congressional delegation, and I beat him in 2010. I, my opponent from 2016, I've not seen since then. And one of the things that I said that I would do is give Joe O'Day my cell phone number after when we were talking, so that we could stay in touch. But I have not done that yet. You've not given him the number. No. Okay. We'll we'll hold you to that, though. You can hold me to that. Okay. Yep. Senator- a good reminder. Senator, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Michael Bennett was reelected to the U.S. Senate Tuesday. The 118th Congress will convene January 3rd. While Democrats held on to Senate control, we still don't know the balance of the House. That will depend in part on the outcome of a Colorado race. Counting and curing will continue for much of the week in the 3rd Congressional District, where incumbent Republican Lauren Boebert is in a squeaker against Democrat Adam Frisch. But that's not the only Colorado race getting global attention. Over the weekend, a Nobel Prize winner tweeted about a state house seat. 
Former Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is the first woman to be democratically elected head of state in Africa. Quoting her now, Congratulations to Liberian-born Nikita Ricks, who was re-elected to the Colorado House of Representatives. She is a shining example of what Liberian women can achieve on the world stage. End quote. Ricks, a Democrat, represents suburbs south of Denver. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Be right back. Colorado's front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Housing affordability was on the ballot this year. CPR's Sarah Mulholland reports on the results of an increasingly common proposal, higher taxes on short-term rentals like Airbnbs. On Tuesday, voters in Aspen, Carbondale, and Steamboat supported raising the tax visitors pay when they stay at a short-term rental. Other towns like Crested Butte and Uray passed similar measures last year. In all those places, at least some of that money will fund affordable housing initiatives. The biggest hike is in Steamboat, where starting next year, people will pay an additional 9% to stay at an Airbnb. The town estimates it could bring in about $11 million per year. It's a, uh, it's a significant local investment in housing, and that will open up a lot of doors for us. That's Jason Peasley, the head of the Yampa Valley Housing Authority. A substantial chunk of the new revenue will likely go toward helping fund his group's Brown Ranch project, a plan to build more than 2,000 housing units on 530 acres just outside city limits, with a price tag of about $400 million. The explosion in the number of short-term rentals in Colorado's resort areas, amplified by the pandemic, has some residents blaming them for gobbling up housing that would otherwise go to locals and making a chronic housing shortage worse. Margaret Bose is the executive director for the Colorado Association of Ski Towns. Short-term rentals, without a doubt, have lots of impacts to communities. Higher taxes aren't the only options. Some limit how many short-term rentals there can be or where they can be. There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. But opponents say the higher tax rates could drive visitors away. Afi Clark is a snowboard instructor living in Carbondale. He didn't know about the short-term rental tax on the ballot, but says if he had, he would have voted in favor. He doesn't think the added cost will make a difference to most people visiting Aspen and Snowmass. They'll be able to absorb the price and will absorb the price increase almost no matter what it is. The final tallies aren't certified yet, but it looks like Grand Junction is the only city that voted against raising the taxes this year. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. No one leaves at the airport, yet when we get weather reports, temperature readings, rainfall totals, it's often the picture at DIA. Before that airport opened in 1995, measurements were taken at Denver's previous airport, closer to the heart of the city. More than a half century of weather observations there. That site was decommissioned when the old airport closed, but it's now back in action. And it's where I met Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson for our regular chat about climate and weather. 
Hi, Mike. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's nice to be outside. Before we talk about this site in particular, though, why do we tend to get so much weather information from the airport? Because that's where the FAA requires that we have accurate weather observations for airline safety. Uh -huh. And so if you think about it, there are weather observations that are taken at Buckley and at Centennial and up to the north at Rocky Mountain uh, Airport and out at DIA. And when the airport was here, where we're standing right now for almost 70 years, that's where they took the observations. Well, the airport is no longer here. We are surrounded by a kind of verdant paradise. What is this site today? This is the Denver Urban Farm. And it is at Smith Road in the exact location where the National Weather Service had their observations for decades, literally to the inch. To the inch? They're standing wow. where the original equipment was for all those years for airline safety. And then, as I said, the equipment moved when DIA opened in the 90s. But that created something of a disconnect between the decades of data at this site and the measurements gathered at DIA, I guess. I mean, they're not even 20 miles apart. What difference could it make, Mike? Makes a vast amount of difference in a lot of different ways. For instance, we can get a cold front that slides in from the northeast, a backdoor cold front, as we oftentimes call it huh. on TV. And that would mean that it'd be much colder out at DIA than it would be where we're standing right now. Or you can have a storm that rolls off the foothills and dumps moisture here and changes the amount of precipitation and the temperature and the humidity and the barometric pressure. And it hasn't arrived out at the airport for a couple of hours later, if and it even gets there at all. For that reason, it's really important to sync the spot of the old data with some current stuff. And so we are standing next to something that is brand spanking new on an old spot. Tell us what we're looking at. Well, for many years after DIA opened, I've been trying to reestablish a weather station that would be not the official reading, but a supplemental reading to kind of bridge that gap of what we lost from 70 years of data taken at the old airport. Mm -hmm. And so the and, problem, and why were you passionate about that? Because as the climate changes, it's not really one-to-one -one of what happens out there compared to what happens right here. And if we're going to understand climate change, let's do it as precisely as we can, you say? Absolutely. Okay. Problem is, you know, I have a nice little weather station at my house, but it's a hobby system, and you can't have something that that inexpensive to take the observations that will go into the official climate records for Denver. So what is towering above us? How t Would you say this is, what, 20 feet tall? It's about a 20-foot aluminum mast with a wind sensor up on the top, solar panels in between, temperature sensors on the way down, and also precipitation right above your head. That's the rain gauge right above your head. Ah, I see. So it's measuring all sorts of things about the weather. I see that little propeller at the top is pretty active. There's, there's at least a breeze today. It's been a fairly windy day, yeah. Where does this data go? Well, right behind you is the box that sends all of the information directly to the National Weather Service. It's all up and running, but the Weather Service is doing all of their final quality control on the accuracy of the equipment. And shortly, within just a couple of weeks, it should be online and we'll have an official observation from Central Park. It's like tuning a piano, Yes, I guess, getting it just right. And this is not just data that will benefit Mike Nelson in Denver 7. No, I will have that displayed on my current temperatures. We'll have DIA and we'll have the 
Central Park temperature every night on the weathercast. But then we can reconnect those decades of data to see how temperatures and precipitation have really changed here with our changing climate. And that's what I think is the real value to it. Now, it didn't come cheap but it didn't come at an expense to the taxpayers because we ran fundraisers over the last five years huh. to buy this equipment and gift it to the National Weather Service. Is the National Weather Service grateful? Did they write you a thank you note, Mike? Yes, they did. Okay. They're, yes, they're very <laughs> grateful. And it took a long time because we thought we had everything all lined up. And then COVID hit. Uh-huh. And during COVID, everything kind of stalled. And then some of the people, because we had to have entities from Denver, the city, from the Parks Department, from the National Weather Service, from the Department of Commerce in Washington, mm -hmm. people retired. And then you had to start over with a new person <laughs> to explain to them what we were trying to do. And finally, we found out that the final approval from the Department of Commerce was sitting on some bureaucrat's desk in Washington, probably under a stack of papers, and we needed to get that person to sign it. So courtesy of some of our Congress people here, <laughs> they managed to get that shepherded through. So we finally got oh. everything, the I's dotted, the T's crossed, and here we are today. A bit of a lobbying yes. effort to get this done. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about the weather and climate that a station like this is gathering. We had in Metro Denver our first appreciable snowfall. Anything to write home about? Four and a half inches is what we had at DIA with the first snow out there, although it had snowed where we are standing uh -huh. about two weeks earlier than that. But that would not go in the official record books because that was the station out there. It will go in the supplemental records, though, and that's important. Now, the first snowfall last year was horrifically late, yes, right? Second week of December. Second week of December. So does this put us on a good track? I've heard some positive things about snowpack so far. So far, the mountains are off to a very good start. Uh, the best that we've seen in about 10 years in the high country. Storm track right now is kind of cranked up a little bit. It's a fast-paced northwesterly flow aloft, and that tends to bring storms into the mountains at the expense of Denver and the plains. There's an old adage that says, Pacific front, mountains bear the brunt, southeast low, Denver gets snow. Ah. And what that means is when that big red L on my weather map is parked over the southeast corner of Colorado, that's when around that low we get the upslope winds that push the moisture up against the mountains, squeeze it out onto the metro area. If it's a really fast moving front, the mountains grab all the moisture and the front just comes blasting through and all we get is wind. And that is more likely the cycle this time around? For this year, it's still a La Nina year, and that generally manifests itself in a northwesterly jet stream flow. But two years ago, when we had that big snow in March, that yeah. was also a La Nina year. So it's not an absolute. Mm -hmm. You can get some subtleties that happen. I think we'll have an okay snow year down here. I'm hoping we have a very good snow year in the mountains because that's, of course, where it really counts. And that's true for our water resources. It's certainly true for tourism as well, if anyone is interested in skiing or snowboarding or snowshoeing. The ski areas are delighted to get this early dump of snow because when the national newscasts show that there's a foot of snow up in the mountains, then that really helps them out because people come flocking in from all over. Ooh, and that's 
the train to the plane, speaking there of the go. airport. There right by. Those people will come in by. <laughs> on those trains, and they'll go up and ski. Thanks so much, Mike, for meeting us here. Congratulations on this. Well, Pet Project feels a little dismissive on this passion project. I appreciate it very much. I'm so delighted to just about have this thing on the radar and working. It will be going here just in a matter of a week or two. And fitting that a plane should go by. I guess it's trains, planes, and I'll head back on an automobile. There you go. Mike Nelson is chief meteorologist at Denver 7, and he joins us regularly to discuss Colorado's climate and weather. Climate-driven wildfires have Colorado builders rethinking an ancient construction material, dirt. More precisely, blocks made from compressed earth that could make homes safer and more resilient. CPR's Sam Brash has this story. Matteo Rebuscini knew his family was in trouble when the smoke shifted last December. He noticed it earlier that morning as a small plume above the foothills. It grew, then blocked the sun, then smothered his home under hurricane-force winds. The smoke started coming through the walls. The fire alarm went off. The cat went hiding. And we kind of figured, you know, we need to leave. Rebuscini, an Italian immigrant, grabbed his passports and his kids. They weren't able to find the cat before they left the house for the last time. The Marshall Fire would end up incinerating their home and more than a thousand others across Boulder County, making it the most destructive blaze in Colorado history. It it has changed in our approach to life, I guess. I, I keep thinking, like, if that happened in the middle of the night, I likely would have been here. The family thought about selling their property, finding someplace less exposed to high winds and sudden firestorms. Melanie Glover is Rebuscini's wife. She says a visit to her old garden helped change her mind. I'm an avid gardener, and I had four large plastic pots on my front porch. The, the dirt from the pots is still sitting in these pyramids on my concrete front porch. And so that, that did sort of make me think, dirt doesn't burn. It doesn't. It doesn't burn. Dirt doesn't burn. That realization got her thinking about ancient techniques to build from earth and mud, like adobe homes in New Mexico. And it led her here to a company called Colorado Earth. Pretty scenic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the flat irons right here. We have a great day. This is Lisa Mori. She founded Colorado Earth in 2017 to make stabilized earth blocks, a modern version of adobe bricks. The company helps clients design and build homes with the material. That now includes a handful of Marshall Fire victims like Rebuscini and Glover. We can kind of start here, um, discussing where the material comes from. Maury let us all see how our company makes the blocks at a facility in Golden. It all starts with a massive pile of dirt. It's really similar to what we put on our baseball fields. What I'm looking for is the right ratio between sand and clay. This is waste material from a nearby quarry. Turning it into bricks is actually crazy simple. It's mixed with a little bit of water and crushed limestone. It's then fed into a hydraulic press. And extrudes it kind of like a Play-Doh extractor, right? Um, At that point, it is a solid block that you can handle. The blocks file out on a line of metal rollers. After they dry, they can be trucked to build sites and stacked into walls. When I ask Maury if they can really stand up to the elements, she points to Mesa Verde and the Great Wall of China both examples of earthen construction. To answer your question, I mean, we've been using this building modality for over 10,000 years, and we have structures that are thousands of years old that are still occupied. The material also performs well under modern engineering tests, according to Michele Barbato. He studies stabilized earth blocks at the University of California, Davis. That means trying his absolute hardest to light the blocks on fire. 
in a certain way, they actually get better with fire. They get stronger because they change from uh, unfired clay to fired clay, so they become normal bricks. Barbato thinks the blocks could be perfect in a new era defined by volatility and climate change. If built properly, he says earthen structures can hold up to earthquakes, floods, and hurricanes. It doesn't take much energy to make them, and the final buildings are incredibly energy efficient, too. So I don't think the problem is uh, technical. The problem uh, is that uh, with the the advent uh, of industrial materials, like uh, concrete uh, and steel, we have lost a lot of uh, the knowledge uh, of building with this material. Local governments have designed building codes to favor wood studs and drywall. And the construction industry, it lacks workers trained in the tough job of stacking heavy blocks. Fire victims Rebuschini and Glover hope that changes in Colorado. They miss the homes in Europe, which hasn't neglected its long tradition in masonry. Here in, the, in, in North America, it feels like it's all... I mean, to an end, right? You buy a house as a stepping stone to your next house. By opting for earth blocks, the couple says they're rebuilding something more secure, a home that could be there for their kids and grandkids, even if it faces another fire. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. When we come back, Colorado helps usher in a new era of space exploration. This is CPR News. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After months of delays, NASA will try again this week to return to the moon. The Artemis mission is just a start. Eventually, the goal is to build a lunar way station to Mars. Colorado's Lockheed Martin built the Orion spacecraft that's at the heart of all this. Engineering manager Heather McKay has worked on the project for more than a decade. We spoke in August. The world hasn't seen something like this in over 50 years since we went to the moon with the Apollo program. This is Artemis. Artemis in Greek mythology is the twin sister of Apollo, which is interesting because the plan through the Artemis mission is to take the first woman and the first person of color to the moon to build a sustained lunar habitat so we can learn how to live and work in deep space and um, ultimately use that knowledge to leave the first footprints in the red dust of Mars. The red dust of Mars. Uh, This is like the biggest rocket ever, isn't it? It's the most powerful rocket. Uh So Artemis 1 will use NASA's space launch systems. It has 8.8 million pounds of thrust. Sitting on top of it will be this Orion spacecraft developed by Lockheed Martin, the only spacecraft designed to carry humans to deep space and return them safely back to Earth. Through the mission, um, it's an orbital flight test, uncrewed. It'll travel 280,000 miles from Earth, a thousand times further than the space station, further than um, any human-rated spacecraft has ever gone before, before returning at 24,000 miles an hour, splashing um, into into the ocean, into the Pacific Ocean. It's about a six-week mission, I guess, total. And yeah, then, so help me understand this with Orion. So it is capable, of course, of carrying people. It will not this time. This is a bit of a test. Right. The the first time we launch on this rocket, and ultimately we want to test all the Orion systems in the deep space environment. 
So we'll be looking at the crew life support systems, the avionics, those are the flight computers, yeah. how we do deep space navigation and control in this deep space environment to prepare for Artemis II, currently scheduled to launch in 2024. And that will take humans on a, on a flight test around the moon as well. So with Artemis One, you're actually going a bit beyond the moon, to be clear. 40,000 miles. And Orion then is reusable. Right. So it's the same craft that will, in further Artemis missions, be launched as well. Right. So Lockheed is working to, um, one, to reduce the cost and be able to, to launch multiple Orion spacecraft. So there's five currently in work ah. and they'll be reused on multiple missions. And that's one way to reduce cost. It's, it's kind of, you take it back. Um, it's like a car, you know, you, you take off some parts, you refurbish them and put them back on and relaunch again. Like a car. Little, <laughs> maybe a little more complicated. Have you been inside? What does it feel like to be in Orion for those future missions that we'll see crews? I have not been inside, but I've I've been there when we're putting it together. Yeah. It's um, it's about the size of a, a college dorm room. So, um, like when I talk to my kids, I talk about imagine being in a college dorm room can take four astronauts. So with three of your best friends, you know, traveling for six weeks to the moon or or you know six months to go to Mars. And one thing we talk about is how you have to bring everything with you. You can't stop in deep space and pick up a Slurpee. You've got to take it all with you. Um, And just what a great adventure that would be and coming back to tell the world about it. So speak to this idea that the moon is a first step to Mars. So you'd get a permanent base there. And to be clear, Orion does not ever land on the moon. It's an orbiter. And then you would shuttle to the moon, correct? That's correct. It takes us to the lunar vicinity. And then a lander would go down to the surface. And then what would you imagine humanity learning from a moon base that would allow it then to go to the red planet? I mean, there's so many things. Um, one, we're so far away from Earth. So being, you could, we can't be Earth reliant. Um, there's all kinds of hazards, you know, radiation and um, extreme temperatures um, that we have to make sure our spacecraft and the humans can survive. There's also really interesting science that we can do along the way. So during these missions, um, scientists want to, we're going to land on the lunar south pole. Um, and there are craters there from when the universe and the solar system was first formed. They haven't seen light in over a billion years. So the NASA scientists really, they want to get some of these core samples, they call it, where they dig into the, to the ground and um, bring those back to study them in Earth, figure out how the universe was formed, you know, look for the building blocks of life. So we want to do some of those things and, um, and learn, you know, along the way. That's right. So it, it is uh, a means to an end, certainly, with Mars, but it is also its own lesson to be on the moon and to be in different places than we've been on the moon. You talk about the South Pole, for instance. These missions are $4.1 billion apiece. Again, with the idea that Artemis keeps going. What is it, each year? So like one mission a year? The goal is to launch once or maybe even more than once per year. Per year. Okay. Um, $4.1 billion a piece. Is it worth it? Well, I'd say, first of all, there are definitely things that we are doing to reduce the costs, not only on the NASA side, but on the Lockheed side, working to reuse the spacecraft, using lessons learned, things like augmented reality, using more 3D printed parts to reduce that cost. The goal is um, less than $2 billion per mission. Um Ultimately, less than two billion. My figures may be off then. Right. That's the goal. It's hard to put a price, I think, on Artemis one because the mission and the development costs are so tied together. But for these future missions, that's NASA's goal is less than two billion. I see. 
And you talk about, is it worth it? Yeah. I mean, so not only do we, you know, get to understand the secrets of the universe, um, but there are so many things that help us improve life here on Earth. Um, advanced technological discovery, you know, job growth, um, economic development. This supports, um, there are companies in all 50 states, over 2,900 small businesses and suppliers that are working on this. And ultimately inspires the next generation of scientists and explorers, you know, the Artemis generation. You talked about augmented reality. How does that play into this? Our manufacturing team uses that quite a bit. So it's a way to more quickly visualize what's happening on the spacecraft. Uh And it's been able to reduce um, manufacturing times by as much as 85%. So you basically play out scenarios virtually to help with the engineering. Right. Before you put the spacecraft together, you um, can see a visual representation of it in, in your glasses to see where parts should go and how they fit together and what challenges you might come into putting the spacecraft together. Do I have it right that Alexa is going to be aboard this mission? Yes, there are (laughs) over 10 scientific payloads flying on the Artemis mission, and one is called Callisto, and it's a partnership with Lockheed Martin, Amazon, and Cisco. And it's a space-rated Amazon Alexa designed to see how this technology could be used with astronauts to communicate um, with the spacecraft. And you can actually, if you have an Alexa at home, you can say, Alexa, take me to the moon. Oh, you you may have fired them across Colorado, just... So yes, you know. <laughs> she'll give you mission updates as we go. So um, okay. very cool. Uh, that is cool. And I may be doing that. Is there any part of you that wishes you were aboard? Um, I, I definitely think it would be wonderful to be aboard and see the views, right? See Earth in the distance and the stars. But I'm, I'm very happy on the ground okay. <laughs> making the spacecraft. <laughs> you grew up in Colorado. I think you're from Littleton, which is actually where you work on the Lockheed campus. How did you get interested in space and science? So um, my mom worked at Lockheed Martin, and um, I went to Take Your Kid to Work Day, and I met former astronaut Bruce McCandless. And I heard him talking about being in space, um, and that's what made me decide to become an engineer. I went to the School of Mines and studied mechanical engineering and systems engineering and then um, went to work at Lockheed. So that that Take Your Daughter to Work Day or Take Your Kid to Work Day, that really was a transformational moment. Absolutely. I always loved, you know, doing math and science and those kind of things. But um, that was what cemented in my mind this. I wanted to do engineering for a career. What do you tell your own kids what you do for a living? Um, Well, so for Miles and Bridget, they're six and three. um, Mom building spacecrafts. I've always done that. It's just kind of table stakes. Um, (laughs) But we like to go outside. Um, They really inspire me. We go outside. They're the first to look up and find the moon. And so we talk about what it would be like on one of these missions. You know, we talked about the great adventure it would be. And they really, they're dreamers, right? And I feel like for us, as we grow up and become adults, sometimes we, we kind of forget about dreaming. We forget to look up and, and see the moon. And, um, and I feel like that's what the Artemis generation is about, um, and the Artemis program, defining this generation and this next great step in, the, in human exploration of deep space. So as I contemplate the moon into the future, with the idea that there's some sort of lunar presence, colony may be too big a word, but like how, how big a presence is being imagined on the moon? I think we start out small. Um, you know, one of the things that we have to learn is how we can make all the things we need. So there's talk about, you know, mining the lunar regolith, they call it in situ resource utilization. So how do we use that to make fuel, 
um, and make oxygen and make all the things that we need. What was that word you used? Regolith? Regolith. Yes. So that's the the lunar soil. That's what they call it. You know, it has some really unique um, characteristics and features. And this is all the idea that because fuel is heavy and expensive, you can't bring everything with you. You're going to have to make some stuff on the moon. Right. I, I would think of it as kind of a camping expedition, uh, to put it into perspective for, you know, maybe how big and the kind of things you're doing and learning as you go along the way and exploring. To the Mars end of this, that is a much longer, more time-intensive proposition. Talk about the difference between the moonshot and the Mars shot, scientifically. Sure. And I think maybe we can talk about what we've done so far in deep space. Yeah. So we have been 135 shuttle flights building the space station, living and working in space, right on the space station for 20 years. But that's just a few hours back to Earth, six hours to get back to Earth. Going to the moon is a thousand times further than that. Takes several days, you know, a few days to a week uh, to get to the moon. Uh Then it takes, you know, between six and nine months to get to Mars. So it's an order of magnitude further. And again, um, bringing everything with you, being able to prepare for any type of emergency you might have along the way. There's a, th- uh, a long delay in communications, you know, back. We can't use GPS like we rely on here on Earth. Um, we have these punishing environments and radiation and all those things. So those are some of the challenges we want to um, want to work on at the moon so that we feel confident going to Mars. What are you blue skying for future Artemis missions? Sure. Well, we're looking at, um, we work with NASA. So um, what is their mission objective and what can we do to um, modify the spacecraft to to do those kind of things? So we're looking at, you know, what are the different payloads that we need to bring? What is the science and how do we bring that back? Um, One of the things we've talked about with these core samples is how do we add a freezer to the spacecraft so that we can (laughs) can bring those back? And the spacecraft's built. So we um, what we're going to do is we're going to put it in the lockers where the astronauts have their clothes, you know, um, in in food. After you've used that, you put this freezer in and bring it back. So those are kind of the things we're looking at um, to help us with really this Artemis campaign and the future of human spaceflight. And every square inch, probably every square centimeter has to be planned out and is incredibly valuable. So the question of what goes where and whether there's room and how light it can be, how those all feel so important. Heather, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much. Heather McKay is Engineering Development Senior Manager for Lockheed Martin's Orion Program in Colorado, which is at the heart of Wednesday's rescheduled Artemis launch. And that is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.